just ask questions. Okay, that's it. Because women do not care about what you have to say at all anyway, you know? And all they want to do is talk about themselves. So you're just going to let them do that. Okay? So remember, questions, be cool, and be kind of a dick. You know, here, be David Caruso in Jade. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. You do. That's good. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I'm recording for Contrarians Corner for Jade. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, and I'm joined, as always, uh, by my cohort and co-pilot down this long and winding road to the contrary, Julio. Julio, uh, this is a bonus episode, correct? Uh, no, this is this is official. <laughs> Okay, this isn't the canon, because we discussed this at the end of the last episode. We're basically going on like a sexy arc, dark, sexy, I don't know, thriller. Yeah. Prominently mid to late 90s. (laughs) We could just call it, we're we're going on a 90s, 90s sexy bender. But it's, uh, well, the way that this happened... It, it's it's gonna look a little weird when you when you look at our our schedule at our at the first half of 2021 for the contrarians because uh, like I mentioned last episode we participated in live stream for the cure last year and we had tiered goals right if we raise this much money then we'll do an episode about this movie and so on so we have four of those Jade was tier number one uh, we hit all four goals so we have four 90s sexy movies, or at least sexy movies, uh, ahead of us. Now, the catch is three of those movies are rotten, and one of them is Gray Area. So we can't just schedule them back to back. (laughs) So, unfortunately, our erection will have to take a break every once in a while. Yeah, it's probably for the best. But (laughs) we're going to, so we're going to have one of these movies every month. So we have Jade this month. Next month is Indecent Proposal. After that is Showgirls. And then we close with the gray area because that hits like our next, you know, gray area marker. And that will be David Cronenberg's Crash. Whew. We're building up to it. The newly released Criterion Crash. Yes. If they do any flash sales, one of us might have to bite the bullet on that and get it. Just for, oh, uh... I-, I am getting it, flash sale or not. Uh, <laughs> I would like the record to show I originally threw in the the ringer for the the sex arc uh, was Disclosure. 
but unfortunately, it does not qualify for Contrarian's lore, um, at least in, in the um, the numeric episodes, as it falls at fifty nine percent. So it's it's a bit difficult. Old Barry Levinson's. Uh, oh, I don't. I don't know what you would call that movie. Ero- erotic thriller, obviously, is what comes to mind first. Have you ever seen the poster for it? Mm-hmm. That's a. Uh, is it Michael Douglas smelling Demi Moore's hair? Or am I thinking of a different movie? That's kind of it. That's one of the posters. That might have been like the VHS cover. The poster itself the was 3D like... 3D re-release. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, piggybacking off our last episode. Uh, no, like the poster's like them making out on a desk or something, but all you see is Demi Moore's back and her dress is hiking up, and like Mike Douglas is just full on two, <laughs> two handfuls of ass. Just, you know... <laughs> 1994, so I'm trying to think. They, they had this next to the the Lion King teaser poster in the the lobbies of <laughs> movie theaters around the country. But I mean, obviously, this is a good thing. We hit all four of our tiers. Obviously, live stream for the cure is in the past now, and that was a rousing success. Uh, we enjoyed doing that greatly, and we kind of made the four tiers jokingly, thinking there was no way we would hit all four of them, and we have. So, uh, my excitement is palpable. As we have this, which I'd never seen before, only had heard of in quiet circles, secret circles. <laughs> only uh, in, in whispers. Indecent proposal, uh, similar. Uh, Showgirls, I have seen. I have a Blu-ray of it, like the some-teenth anniversary Blu-ray that I got for like three bucks that's still in the shrink wrapping. So going to get to dust that bad boy off and... Uh, Crash, which as I've explained before here on the podcast, was the first ever movie I was aware of that was rated NC-17. I remember seeing the ad for it in the newspaper and having to ask, I think it was my uncle, what does this mean? He's like, you mean you can't see it? Oh, okay. That makes sense. So, it's going to be quite the bumpy ride, but like I said, we'll have uh, cold showers in between to kind of cleanse us. Yeah. Titanic, Jade. Uh... (laughs) Can't wait for the rest of the pairings. I mean, yeah, we'll have to compare the sex scenes to because basically Titanic kicked us off the the buggy <laughs> sex with the foggy window. How does that compare to what we saw here in Jade? I mean, the first thing you see is like fucking David Caruso's face, so it's already <laughs> the panty dropper. <laughs> Before we get to Jade, we want to thank any. Uh, any and all new listeners, if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, thank you very much for joining us. If you're a returning listener, much appreciated. Bear with us here while we explain what we do on the podcast to our new listeners. Uh, here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, is the expression we like to use. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes, as you can already tell uh, by us referring to gray area episodes, fresh, rotten. We like to find movies that are highly rated on Rotten Tomatoes, a lot of times referred to as certified fresh, make a case for maybe why they ain't so good. And then on the other side of the coin, we like to find a movie that's typically 30% and below, uh, those nasty green splotches known as Rotten, and make a case for maybe why the critics got it wrong and some of the positive merit in it. Every 10 episodes we tackle, as Julio mentioned, what we call a gray area episode, which typically falls in like 45% to 55%. So every once in a while, we kind of split it right down the middle. Whatever the case, that's how we tackle the first portion of the podcast, uh, what we refer to as Contrarian's Corner. Julio, we uh, we make it a bit more real in the second half. Yes, the second half of the show, aptly named Real Talk. That's where we tell you and each other how we really feel. Uh, this was a first for both Alex and I. 
neither of us had seen Jade. Uh, and in these in these pandemic times, we no longer watch movies together. So mm. I have no idea what Alex actually liked and what Alex actually disliked in this movie. And I cannot wait to hear how you feel about just all of it. <laughs> but that's not until the second half of the show. So being that Jade is 14% on Rotten Tomatoes, that lowly green splotch, one of the lower ones we've done here in a, in a little while, or lowest, and uh, we will be making a case for putting a positive spin on it, making a case for the things in it that should be celebrated. This erotic thriller, uh, William Friedkin's his uh, spiritual successor to the exorcist uh, from <laughs> 1995. So Jade, Julio, how did you watch this? Uh, Jade was thankfully available on Amazon prime. I, I was ready, man. I was ready to just commit and do like a, a group purchase and just buy all four of the, of the movies on this choppy, sexy arc that we have coming up. But, uh, but then I, I ended up not doing it because uh, I have Amazon Prime, so Jade was was available for free, and uh, I watched it. I waited till my wife went to sleep. Then I went to the living room, fired this baby up because I knew Lit it was going to be. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was. Patrons, when you see my notes, you'll see that the the handwriting is worse than usual, and that's because I was writing in the dark. I thought but, you were going to say they'll they'll note that the the notes were stuck together. Oh no, no had to go on. there. Too easy. No. The dog was still around, so I couldn't do it with the dog <laughs> looking at me. But anyway, yeah, I, I watched it on Amazon Prime, and uh, it was it looked good. I mean, it, it was just, uh, uh, I don't know about the, what do you call it, the 90s sheen? Was that, Yes. Was, did I get the right I was, decade? Yeah, because this was uh, from the same time period as like uh, the movie we talked about that on previously, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. One day I will find out why there is this mid '90s like fuzz to movies. Because you know what I mean? It like looks like you're watching a VHS almost. This is the first time that I've noticed it. I don't know if you just got into my head or, <laughs> but if you did, there. it was it was not conscious because it's not until you know. Like right now, as I was talking to you about it, I was like, it is the sheen, <laughs> the 90s sheen. Yeah. Contrarians listeners, if you know, this has been mentioned before in the past, it's been several episodes, but if you know why movies in the mid 90s, sometimes early 90s as well, let's just go early to mid. Let's just encompass it all. Why there's that kind of like CRT monitor hue to movies, even like when you're watching, <laughs> you know, HD remasters of it. Please let us know. Was there a different film material in the film? Were they cheapening the film for cut cost, uh, cost cutting? Excuse me. Who knows? Is but there a big conspiracy against nineties movies when they do the HD transfers. It could be. It's been covered up because their voices are being silenced. But I, you can find in certain areas of the internet uh, filmmakers <laughs> from the mid, to, <laughs> the early to mid nineties that were sworn under penalty of perjury that they saw the real movie being submitted, but then someone came in and took it away and put the the new movie that they wanted in there. And then so the movie that actually made it to the theater and was pronounced the movie was actually a fraud. I, I blame Twitter for silencing Friedkin and uh, all those other filmmakers. Make film great again. Uh, <laughs> so with Jade... Uh, do you? Re- we've never seen this before. I also watched it on Amazon. This was my first time seeing it. 
I have mentioned many, many times in the past when I go in my longing for the days of uh, video stores and Blockbuster, Video Connection, PM Video, all the ones I used to hit up as a as a youngin. Uh, the Jade box art was definitely one that was picked up, looked at, studied many, many times. Um, you know what I'm talking about? The kind of green uh, silhouette, not silhouette, but it's the shot of... Um, Homegirl's back with her hand up on the wall. Do you, mm-hmm. do you know what I'm referring to? The poster? Oh, yeah. Because that that's, was the VHS box as well. That's the only thing I can think of when I think of Jade. Well, that I could before I watched the movie. Now I have other images in my head. But yeah, it, that's, it, it, it doesn't really tell you much. And at the same time, it tells you everything. Absolutely. And it's almost a Christmas poster because it's the green glow <laughs> and Jade is in vibrant red. It's a shame this was released on October 13th. They could have done this for a Christmas Eve release or a Christmas Day even. Aside from that, my main memory of this movie was that it was like an adult movie. I don't mean that in a porn way, but at you know, eight years old and 95. I remember my uncle renting this when we stayed with my aunt and uncle one time and seeing like the box art and he was like uh, they were waiting for the kids to go to bed so him and my dad could watch it because my uncle was always like really into you know, crazy movies. And he like, uh, quick sidebar when Pulp Fiction came out, like he made my dad go see it in the theater with him. He's like, you have to see this movie. And so kind of after that, he was always all like, like the first R rated movies I was familiar with was cause my uncle would tell my dad, you have to see this movie. So Jade is one of those. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not sure I can say it lived up to like the hype of Pulp Fiction, <laughs> but well, your uncle didn't take your dad to the theater. Your dad told him, you have to watch this movie, but you can wait for the VHS. You have to go get it, and they put it in a black uh, paper bag, and you have to carry it out that way. <laughs> Make sure you take your ID. So, Jade, 14%, released on October 13th of 1995, as I mentioned, with a box office return of a little bit under $10 million. Wasn't able to find a, a budget. I'll try to do so as we record. But Julio, not really received well or warm and uh, doesn't have too much of a lasting legacy to speak of. I'm curious uh, the quotes you obtained, if they would have been from the time of release or someone who's like retroactively discovered this movie. Uh, It feels like they were all from time of release, but uh, unlike our previous episode, there's not allusions to 3D re-releases or anything. You know, it's not like, wow, it's like Chas Palminteri is coming right at you. (laughs) It's just, they're kind of generic. Uh, but yeah, pretty negative. So here's a bunch of uh, rotten quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, uh, starting with Bruce Dionys from The New Yorker, who says, Writer Joe Esterhaz's follow-up to his showgirls fiasco is every bit as hopeless, and this time he takes some good actors down with him. Uh, I know you want to save the, the Esterhaz factor for uh, the second half of the show, but uh, I think that the, the key thing is that this guy, Bruce Dionis, is implying that that Showgirls didn't take down any good actors when it bombed. Yeah. That's kind of an insult to Gina Gershon, if nothing else. I, I, I should be able to comment more on this quote. Got Kyle MacLachlan in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in two months, I'll be able to tell you more about Showgirls, how I feel, if, if I think that this is accurate. We'll get there. Uh, next, Frank Ochiang from theworldjournal.com says, A monotonous and misguided sexual thriller that certainly doesn't cater to the typical Friedkin vibes. And Caruso left his top-rated, critically acclaimed ABC TV cop show for this? What show are they talking about? Do you know? He's on CSI, right? Right, but that's after. 
Like, there's life after Jade. <laughs> oh, uh, NYPD Blue. So that's that's Caruso's thing. He's he's always been a cop. Oh, we'll talk about David Caruso's thing. <laughs> How much of David Caruso's thing do we see in this movie? <laughs> uh, Rob Vaugh from Flipside Movie Emporium says post-viewing showers should be mandatory. So is that supposed to be because like it's so sexy, or because it's just you feel gross after watching it? Could be both. You know, like uh, what do they call it? Is it like the the post masturbation shame? You know, it's like he's into it, but then oh. once he's done, he's like, "Oh God, I need a shower." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, uh, Fassbender like waking up in the alley after he's been beat up in shame. Like, what have I done? <laughs> Uh, and finally, Carlo Cavagna from AboutFilm.com says, More degrading than some porn films. Oh, come on. What kind of porn are you watching, Carlo? <laughs> for real. That's back in the <laughs> days where you had to pay for that shit, too. So they had to like go out and buy some to do some research on it. <laughs> Long before the days of internet pornography. I'm sure this would have been a movie that was uh, made famous rounds in that, because this was right before... I mean, the internet was around, but really the accessibility came into play. So I imagine this the word of mouth treated this kind of like a wild things of its day. Uh, I think there's a lot more of a thrilling and action-packed aspect to this, though, than uh, wild things. So as we mentioned, William Friedkin, directed, written by Joe Ez- Esterhaus. We'll figure out by the end of this arc how you actually <laughs> pronounce that dude's last name. Starring David Caruso, Linda Forentino, and Chaz Palminteri. I just imagine like the original post for this was that uh, Honeymoon in Vegas with Nick Cage, Sarah Jessica Parker, and James Caan. <laughs> just the three of them. Like, what are we doing here? I, I thought you were going to say that the original poster was uh, this exact same thing, but it's uh, Chaz Palminteri with his arms straight up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Can just hear his fucking moans of ecstasy later in this movie. That's just one of my notes when he's having sex with uh, uh, Trina. He he is not a sexy man. He <laughs> he has sex like he's about to die. Pretty much is what's going on. <laughs> but is uh, the big question is is that the actor or is that the part? Right? He didn't know the cameras were on. Friedkin was just going full on method with them. He's like, "All right, you two have sex. I'll just be in the next room." Well, I just want to know if if Paul Minteri made a conscious choice to play the sex scene that way. Uh, oh yeah, you know that dude fucks. Come on, man. But... <laughs> but 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 you know he doesn't really get at least in my limited knowledge of Chas Palminteri's filmography. He's not known for for having sex scenes. You know, he's known for being like the tough gangster, the tough cop, the the, the tough guy. And uh, this might be, I, I'm I'd be happy to be corrected by by contrarian listeners, but this might be the one Chas Palminteri sex scene in his entire filmography. And so I don't know how aware he was of that, but he chose to just basically play it in the most unremarkable way, which to me is is brave. I was about to say, as you were saying that, I was realizing how brilliant that is. He was like, I may never have another sex scene, so I got to make this one memorable. And the bigger part is we don't get to see his vinegar strokes. The camera is like uh, (laughs) on Trina the whole time. So you just hear Paul Terry, whatever he's doing. Uh, You know, (laughs) he sounds like uh, in The Last of Us, like when you're trying to rescue someone and they're kind of far away and faint. Like, "Eh, eh." (laughs) Uh, of course, 
another another possibility is that he was saving his energy like for the actual performance for when the camera was going to be on him. He didn't know that that Friedkin was just going to use the one shot of Linda Florentino's face and never give him any coverage. So, yes, there's like a deleted scene or just, you know, <laughs> uh film that was on the cutting room floor of him just like wailing away, sweat beating down his head. I'm Jazz Palmentary. <laughs> <laughs> What's his character's name? Matt. Yeah, Matt. what a what an unsexy name. He couldn't just be like Matt's your daddy, baby. That wouldn't really be that sexy. <laughs> uh, man, that's like just jumped straight right to the middle of the movie. I mean, this movie's just entwined. It's sex all around. But this movie is about San Francisco Assistant District Attorney David Corelli. Played by David Caruso. <laughs> he, it's uh, I think I already made this joke since we did Blue is the Warmest Color, but the, I'm going to keep making it every time an actor plays their themselves in a movie or a character with their same name. Of They originally had a different name for him, but they just called him that on camera so many times they, they had to rewrite the script. Like, fuck it, we're just going to have his character be named David. Uh, it was the only way to get his attention. Every time yes. they called him by the, act, by the character's name, he, he just wouldn't react. He was too busy with his hands in his pockets, which is is as good of a time to go ahead and establish this. This is like a new trope that I am going to be calling for on episodes and as long as this podcast goes on for years to come. The white guy with his hands in his pockets is something that teeters such a fine piano wire thin line between cool and very creepy. <laughs> and Caruso here comes off as a cool white guy, which is one of the hardest things in the world to do. And part of that is just because he doesn't give a fuck. Anytime he doesn't know what to do or anytime he thinks someone's trying to intimidate him, hands in the pockets. What do you got to do? What's he doing there? Could have a gun. Could just be, you know, uh, reaching for a piece of gum. You know, he, he doesn't care. Himself the way he that could be. Goes. Yes, he could have a hole in his pocket. He's just working his way through. But it's all about his demeanor of, you know, a guy with his hands in his pockets doesn't give a fuck what you're telling him. <laughs> he does not give a shit what you have to say. And it's that old thing, too, with all those people threatening to kill him. is like, I'm just standing here with my hands in my pockets. If you're going to do it, do it. And <laughs> Caruso owns the screen in almost every scene he's in because of the pocket play. I... Oh, you know, I guess I noticed it, but I hadn't really thought about it that much. My the way that I that I came at the at the Caruso character because I don't know about you, I I had never seen uh, his CSI. I haven't seen his uh, was it NYPD Blues, but I haven't yeah. seen any of his TV work. I've seen him maybe in one movie. He has one movie with uh, Robert De Niro and Bill Murray, and he was like a supporting character there. So this is my introduction to David Caruso as a leading man, and. It was the thing that's that was just striking to me was that he is not your typical American leading man in that he is not testosterone personified, right? He, I mean, he's capable, and you're right, he's cool, but he's not. I mean, even just the the, the biggest contrast, right, between him and Chas Palminteri. And Palminteri, he's like. He's a dude, right? He's big, and he's he has the thick eyebrows, and he's just. You know, when they're playing, uh, was it squash together? Or racquetball. 
racquetball. When they're playing racquetball together, the, the contrast of, you know, they're both wearing shorts, but one of them looks like, like like a grown man and the other one looks kind of like a teenager. There's just something unassuming, just something very regular guy about David Caruso, which makes it even more impressive, I think, that he manages to prevail throughout this entire thing. And it works because, just to, to contrast briefly with, with another of Joe Esther has his uh, works, right? And Basic Instinct, it's also sort of a neurotic thriller. But there, your protagonist is Mike Douglas, which, you know, we, we always make fun of just the raw sexuality that comes when you when you put Michael Douglas on screen. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't get that with David Caruso. With David Caruso, you get something that's closer to like a regular guy, like a cool regular guy, but he's not, you're not expecting him to just be able to withstand the depravity that this movie has promised from the very beginning, uh, which makes it great. You know, if like if if, if uh, Michael Douglas was playing the character of David Corelli, I wouldn't be so worried. I'll be like, oh, Douglas is going to handle this because he's been through much worse. Uh, but with Caruso, it's like you're always an itch and you're always pleasantly surprised when he keeps coming out on top. So to me, it's like perfect casting. This is how you make this sort of movie work. Yeah, and it's also to go back to the hands in the pockets, because I think this is very important. We discuss the hands in the pockets, and I think it's just what you're saying. He's so unassuming, and you don't expect it to come from him, but nothing in this movie surprises him or catches him off guard. He's never really like, whoa, or he never seems scared. Just everything's greeted with a a calm, cool hands in the pockets, and just uh, usually has a one-liner to accompany it. Yeah, and he sees some, some fucked up shit in this movie. Right off the bat, he sees some really fucked up shit. Some old dude named Kyle Medford was like brutally beaten to death in his home. They said he was bludgeoned, but they show him and it looks like his head is fine. It's just the rest of his body is like almost gone. He was cut up with some ancient hatchet uh, and was not a good night for him. (laughs) I did appreciate when they got there. Did you notice the Halloween 6 slash cut? Like, go to the next scene. It's like, I got to get to this crime scene. It's like, wow, wow, wow. And then it just cuts to where he is next. They do uh, it like I, twice in the movie. I did. I also noticed the the Halloween original opening. When we, the movie opens with this sort of, uh, you know, back when when we did Halloween, I called it the, the Michael cam. But here it's just like, a, I don't know. It's a, a freaking cam, which is like this one shot where the camera's just going through the house and we hear the screams of the guy, I guess, getting murdered and then eventually we get to the it just finally after giving you a whole tour of the house uh it rests on you know a position where you can see the blood kind of seeping from under the the door where the guy was killed so i guess very bloody big uh big halloween fan uh william friedkin (laughs) the entire (laughs) franchise not just the original Little known. Yeah, he's a he's a big six truther. He he prefers the theatrical cut though, not the producer's cut. <laughs> I don't think there's any tangible evidence here that the character of Bob Hargrove, who was played uh, allegedly by Michael Bain, was not also Joe Pantoliano and they just switched in and out throughout filming of this. <laughs> it's like uh That first shot is the first shot of him when he's like, Hey, or he says whatever, I was like, Hey, that's Joe Pantoliano. And then it like panned out and I was like, that kind of looks like Michael Bain and the, you know, the credits say Michael Bain, but I'm telling you there was some parent trap shit going on here. Well, I didn't even recognize him until maybe halfway through the movie. Like I saw him on the opening credits 
you know how like sometimes when you pause a movie, if you're watching Amazon Prime, it'll list some of the people that are on the scene. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we listed him. I was like, Michael Bean is in the scene. He already showed up. And eventually, like by process of elimination, I figured out who he was. It's just like, I think it's a mustache. The mustache just completely transforms his face. And it like rounds his head out. So, cause like he looked a bit heavier than he usually does. That's why I thought it was the Pantaleones. But (laughs) it, I got like mad. I was like, no, they're lying to me. This isn't Michael Bain. And, you know, a few scenes down the road, I think he yells at one point. I'm like, all right, well, that's Michael Bain. I mean, it's an honest mistake. It could happen to anyone, Alex. Uh, <laughs> because, especially because, like, Michael Bain is just, it's not just physically, but I think that uh, personality wise, I've never seen him be this aggressive. I mean, we've seen him be like in Terminator, right? He's he's aggressive, but in a different way. It's like desperate. Here it's just like, I don't know. I think it, it comes back to how every single male character in this movie stands in such sharp contrast against David Caruso, right? Like everybody is just kind of interchangeable fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also like, like they're all like out trying to prove something and Caruso is just chilling out. And Michael Bean is just constantly complaining and, like I said, being really aggressive. And I, I don't know, it's just not what we're used to uh, from him. So that's good. You know, Fritkin made him flex different muscles. So Michael Bain, though, appearing in this is not the only uh, future cast member of Take Me Home Tonight that we will see. Uh, but he is the first. <laughs> uh, at the crime scene, David Caruso, David discovers something just really weird. And it's just like a collection of pubic hair and these little silver... Uh, jewelry cases that's that's a new one for us it sets the tone for sure it, it definitely sets yeah it's you're here for pubic play so buckle up this is what's gonna happen <laughs> we but just it's started like the movie handfuls it's fucking gross people need to groom themselves and i guess they do <laughs> and fucking this uh what's the character's name medford just helps people shave and keeps them behind <laughs> like they were scalps or something it's fucking very off-putting it's never referenced again it's, this is literally just there to, to be just weird. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, to, to set the stage. So set your expectations on high. Also at the crime scene, David finds a cuff link and he gives it to uh, one of the people that he works with. Uh, one of the other investigators is like, you need to hang on to this. Uh, don't enter this into the evidence yet. You know, I'll eventually tell you what it's all about. Um, so he finds the one box that doesn't have a clear name on it. It has like a symbol. Uh, I'm not quite sure. They don't really specify which nationality uh, these Asian folk are, do they? Uh, no. I don't know what the deal is with the Asian undercurrent. Uh, In San Francisco. Yeah, but but there's uh, the way that William Friedkin it seems fixated on all the Asian elements on the outskirts of this movie. It's not that the Asian elements were disturbing, but his fixation on them was disturbing. You know what I mean? Like every time that there's like something crazy happening, then there's just some like people with like kabuki makeup in the background <laughs> or, or or there's just like the music with the bells. It's just, I kept waiting for something to happen. Like I thought when we finally met Jade, Jade was going to be like, I don't know, you know, an Asian lady. Uh, I guess it's it's part misdirection, part just uh, freaking fucking with your head, you know. But it, the fact that it's it's all around the movie, but it doesn't have any payoff. I think it's it's kind of brilliant. It has you guessing the whole time, like where is this going? 
And, you know, is this going to come back up to, to haunt us with some, like, uprising? Or uh, I, I Also, it just adds a whole sense of unpredictability to it. Uh, but he does take this uh, silver case uh, down and has it interpreted uh, by an Asian man in San Francisco. And he says it means jade. So, unfortunately, that's not when the uh, title hit the screen. But that you would... <laughs> You would think that would make the most sense. Uh, there's a couple scenes here where I have a note where the the miking seems really weird. Like the audio seems like the room style where it was dubbed over afterwards. I mean, the lip syncing matches up. It's just the audio levels were very strange. I, I guess this was the remaster. It wasn't the the old copy where you could barely understand what they were saying. In the original recording, uh, Caruso's always out of breath. And while that was very realistic, I guess audiences complained that uh, it was really hard to understand him. Haywire, was that Steven Soderbergh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Gina thing Carano? Of, had to go back and redo her voice afterwards because it was too feminine. It's like, well, she's a woman, so that would make sense. Or uh, I guess a more pressing example would be The Dark Knight Rises. Had to go back and do all of Tom Hardy's dialogue because people that saw the... Oh, yeah, uh, too feminine. <laughs> Yeah, people that saw the preview of it were like, can't understand what he's saying. That's xenophobic. <laughs> and Nolan was like, but do you understand what he means? <laughs> you better take note. This shit's going to happen in about eight years from now. <laughs> uh, from the crime scene, they discovered that there were in this uh, Medford character. He's a very prominent businessman, art dealer. Uh, brushed shoulders with some of the elite of California. They discover in one of his safes a collection of pictures of the governor of California just going to town with what appears to be a prostitute. And uh, Corelli, you know, trying to get to the bottom of the case, he goes to interrogate the governor and also, you know, that sets off a lot of sirens. So, like, the police chief threatens to take him off the case or the district attorney threatens to take him off the case, and he said he's going to go public with them. Um, he doesn't give a fuck. He, his hands are in his pockets when he says this to him. <laughs> and you had mentioned it earlier, but I do have the note here. Him and Paul and Terry have the gentleman's meeting where they discuss, you know, what the case is looking like and where he's going to take it next. And they're playing racquetball while doing this. One of the more menly sports around that isn't highlighted nearly enough in a movie. In a movie of raw sexual energy, there's no sport for two men to play but racquetball. It's, is it the shorts? Is it just the, the amount of sweat? Is it the sound effects? It's it's all the sound effects and then the aggression that goes into the swing, I've always thought, are what make it one of the more, you know, just categorically manly sports. It's like, if you can handle racquetball, you can handle Linda Fiorentino. David takes the uh, pictures to the governor and he's just like, hey, I have this case going. These are pictures of you. Are you going to help me or not? And let me know what you know. <laughs> The governor just does a lot of swearing. He says, son of a bitch. I think he says, cock-sucking son of a bitch. And yeah, the governor makes the mistake of uh, letting his, I guess it's his aide, his his right-hand man, uh, yeah. stick around for the meeting. It's like, there's no secrets between me and this dude. And then as soon as uh, Caruso shows him the pictures, he's like, uh, leave us. Or anything you can show me, you can show him. And he looks at it, he goes, you can't show him this. Get out of my office. <laughs> Um, so these pictures are the first, the opening salvo as far as sexy stuff in the movie. I mean, granted, we already saw Chess Palminteri and Lina Fiorentino dancing, which was sexy. But as far as what the poster promised you, right? 
this is this is the the first the first punch. It, it, uh, they're like black and white, but there's like they look pretty graphic. In but in a way, you know, you know that it's just it's just a warm up. I mean, the, I, I think one of the genius things about Jade is the fact that I guess all of its marketing promises you that you're going to see the main cast get down and dirty. You know, it's only a matter of time. You're kind of like counting the minutes until David Caruso strips naked. Uh, <laughs> it, and the fact that the movie kind of like dangles that in front of you for 90 minutes is, is pretty is pretty remarkable. And also in the scene with the governor, they tried to make a, a topical reference of Jerry Brown, who at that point would have been a, a former uh, governor of California. Uh, he says, you know, if you go public with this, what does he say? He's like, you'll be less likely to find work in California than Jerry Brown. I guess Jerry Brown was the governor for a while and then went away and kind of, uh, I, I did minor research on it, but he went and kind of started living a, a separate life at the point in time this movie came out. Uh, but the, <laughs> they they brought I, him back into the spotlight. Well, the irony of it was he went on to become the governor of California again, several years later. Like, fuck you, Fritkin. I really just hope that whoever he ran against, when was it? It was in the 2010s, I want to say. Uh, 2011 uh, to 2019 is when he was governor again. I just want to imagine whoever he was running against, though, at that point in time, just use this clip from Jade. Like, <laughs> do we really want this guy back in the office? A dated <laughs> reference from 1995. Trina is away in, is it New York she goes to? Or no, she just goes from San Francisco to L.A., right? Yeah, 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 yeah. She goes to a conference. Because uh, she's a clinical psychologist, so she's going to basically speak about whatever fucking thesis she's working on or some shit. So you said, uh, I think it was before we started recording, that your your Linda Fiorentino experience is limited to Men in Black. Correct. Yeah, like I told you, I, I remember her from also from Dogma and uh, The Last Seduction. And, but there is... Uh, you know, Linda Fiorentino, granted, just from the few movies I've seen her in, you know, she has kind of like a, at least in those movies, her range is just, or rather her, the sweet spot in her performances is just the the bored, sexy look, or sexy, bored look, where it's just, and it's not just a look, but a complete attitude. And mm-hmm. uh, I found it fascinating that it carries over from the standard social situations, like, you know, earlier in the movie, she's dancing with Palminteri, then she dances with Caruso, then with Palminteri again, and, and it's just, she's doing the the sexy, bored woman thing. But then she does it also at her at her lecture, when she's talking to uh, a bunch of people, a bunch of strangers about, I don't know, psychotic disassociation or whatever, you know, she's still, like, she's talking in that tone, like, the whole, like, I am sexy and I'm bored and I'm over this. I, I thought it was great. You know, I don't know that there's any other movies that have used the the Linda Fiorentino personality in that way, in that scenario. Well, then, you know, it just goes from subtle sexiness to her just stark naked talking on the telephone for no clear reason. I'm not sure why she was naked to make these phone calls, but hey, I ain't <laughs> mad at it. And she, oh, she calls Matt uh, Palminteri just to be like, Hey, I'm missing you. Uh, she calls him to see if he's still at work, and they're obviously in a frayed relationship, and she knows that, and it's made evident to the viewer because Palminteri gets this message on his answering machine and then walks outside of the room he's in and starts getting a hummer from some random blonde. <laughs> yeah. it's 
It made me think of, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that rule that, that say if you're writing an action movie, you need to have a, an action scene an action scene every 10 pages, I think. And I guess if you're writing a, a sexy thriller, you're supposed to have some sort of nudity or sex act every, you know, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. So it doesn't matter what's going on in the story. It was like, oh, this is just supposed to be a phone call. I don't care. Get naked because it's time for <laughs> for another sexy moment in the movie. Fuck, I didn't pace this out right enough. Linda, <laughs> take him off. Now, originally, Chess Palminteri was just supposed to uh, be taking a nap when the call came in. But it was a 10-minute mark, so uh, switch it up. Blowjob. <laughs> so they end up finding the uh, hooker from the pictures with the governor. Uh, her name being, what is it, Patrice? Patrice Jancinto, uh, played by Angie Everhart who is our second Take Me Home Tonight cast member. She oh. plays Trish in Take Me Home Tonight. She is as hot in that movie as she is in this. She's the one that wants to have a three-way with her boyfriend with Contrarian's favorite, Dan Fogler. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so, I didn't recognize her. Shame on me for not recognizing uh, her, but it, uh, but I agree. She is fantastic in this movie just two heaters that she's in here with uh yeah i guess we could probably by the end of this add david caruso to the dan fogler hall of uh underutilized <laughs> but she's here she's discovered because they find out that uh, homeboy medford had like this sex dungeon or fuck house as they call it uh kind of hidden off the beach somewhere where people just went they find all these sex toys videotapes it's well, it's, it's a hell of a of a commercial for what do they call it pleasure pillows. The- Thank you for bringing that up because <laughs> that was leading. Yeah, the pleasure pillow where it's for um, deep in penetration and you can elevate it or lower it depending on your, um, you know, your desires for the evening. But you brought that up, and the man who reads the whole copyright <laughs> the that they had sent along with it, uh, the pleasure pillow. Yeah, just. Friedkin got paid an extra 50k for this. He just got like some copy from them and just posted it on there. He's like, just read this. Um, it was 100 uh, k if uh, Fiorentino read it, but they're like, no, that's okay. Just give it to the to the older investigator. Still do yes. the job. Ken King is his name. He played uh, Vesco, one of the crime scene investigators. This is only one of two movies he's done, two acting assignments that he's had. Really, I was trying. Yeah, trying to see if I could find any reason of that. I didn't know if he was just like fucking Friedkin's mailman, and he just <laughs> thought he would be good for the role of uh, Vesco. But this dude rules. He mm-hmm. is an early contender for uh, my Embry for Best Supporting Actor because he he has all the trappings of like you know your older uncle because he kind of rolls his eyes at all of this. He's obviously good at his job because he finds all the shit that he needs to and discovers things that no one else does. And then three, it's like the realistic aspect of it. He's a big fat dude, and so he's always like breathing heavy everywhere he goes. <laughs> and um, we're gonna get to it here in just a second. But there's a chase scene with him, mm-hmm. and he is like, when they finally catch the perp, he catches up like 30 seconds after the fact. It's so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, but also, he seems to enjoy his job. It's not just that he can do his job well, but he seems to, you know, like yes, uh, yes. Michael Bean. He he seems to be in a bad mood the entire movie, but this guy is having a good time. He, I, I. I it comes across like 
he likes his job. He likes his co-workers. It, this is some disgusting, disturbing shit that he's investigating. But you know what? He can handle it. He's He seems really well adjusted. He seems excited by like the challenge that it presents. Yes. He's ready to do a good job. Whereas exactly you said, Michael Bain, it seems angry to be there. Caruso seems like he's too cool for it all. He seems like he's above it. But you have Ken King here, Vesco. You know, I'm glad we didn't go with the predictable trope of him getting killed because he's the only <laughs> likable cop. The one that's like, you know, the young guy in the Nam movie that's too excited to be there. Right. You have this fat cop that's good at his job and it seems well respected and liked. But um, that's that was my note that Ken King rules. Uh, <laughs> Vesco and David, they go to track down Patrice. She works at a beauty salon in Chinatown, I think is what they say. And they go to see her and... For some investigators on a murder case, they don't really do a good job of scoping out exits anywhere they go because they're just like, hey, Patrice, can we speak with you? And she's like, sure, let me just get something over here, then takes off running out the back door. And it leads to one of several chases through Chinatown. They they chase her through a goddamn kabuki theater. <laughs> I'm telling you, it, but isn't that weird? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I've never. It, it's memorable because you're right. like, why was that there? Right, that's that's what I'm thinking. Like Friedkin, I mean, is deliberately there, just to be there, like for for flavor, not for any sort of plot purpose. Because again, nothing related to Chinatown or to Asia in general, like none of that pays off. Uh, but we are trained by traditional movies to expect some sort of payoff, and instead, Friedkin's just like, no, I'm just I'm just throwing paint at the wall and making things more interesting. And it works, and it's colorful, and it makes for a memorable set. Uh, eventually, David catches Patrice, and like I said, coming up the rear about 30 to 40 seconds later, here comes Vesco. Hold on! <laughs> <laughs> with the handcuffs. Yeah, he actually handcuffs her because she's fighting with David. He actually saves the day. And then he you know, has to get life-flighted back because of oxygen deprivation. But <laughs> they get Patrice back to the station. This leads to, if what else at this point would you expect? A sexy interrogation. She and Caruso are very f- close face-to-face to the point of almost aggressive whispering about how the case is going to go, what they know. And Caruso basically says, you know, you can call your lawyer, but he's not going to do anything for you. So she speaks. She says she knew, obviously, she was with the governor. Uh, this leads to her explaining that she was like part of a prostitution ring and that the prize possession was this jade, this uh, very ambiguous kind of shadowy figure that no one knows anything about. But it was like, once you were with Jade, you didn't want to be with anybody else. That was... Yeah, they could they could have called her character Renee, so they could say, Renee went anyway. Because basically <laughs> she just says without saying that Jade will do anything that you want to do sexually. Kind of setting up the main mystery, I guess, of the movie. Because really, once this is once they drop this this new question mark, on the plot, you no longer care about who killed the dude from the beginning. You just no. want to know who Jade is. Yes. They really build her up. Like Angie Everhart says, uh, you know, I actually prefer girls. And if I ever saw her, I would I would go for it. Like in a, in a millisecond, I would just hook up with her. So I, I was not as cool as David Caruso, just taking this and, and just letting it slide off my back i was just like all right well show me where's jade who is jade i mean not to jump too far ahead but did you have an inkling of who jade was at this point in the movie subtlety is not what i would call this movie's strong suit so (laughs) i kind of had some idea 
And then when they disclosed that she, you know, she had dark hair, uh, that kind of made it a bit more apparent to me. I could have used, you know, this movie was cutting it pretty close to the Mattis rule. It, it, it attained it though, but I could have used at least a scene where David either has a wife or maybe, you know, solicits a prostitute and is having sex, but his confusion about who Jade is just overcomes him. And as he climaxes, he just yells, Jade! <laughs> but he knows. I think he knows already who Jade is. I mean, he saw the poster for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> He's just been looking around for that green light. He's like, where the fuck is this? Where, where do I find that? So, Jade. Have we found Jade? Where is Jade? That's becomes the obsession of this case. Not only the case, but for the viewer yourself, you want to know. Naturally, Trina's investigated, as was discovered at the beginning of the movie and has been mentioned several times throughout it. She was the last person to see Medford before he was murdered. She comes back from her conference or you know whatever she was doing, her business trip, and she's, I guess, not interrogated but questioned about where she was, her relationship with the victim, that type of thing. She, again, is doing the sexy board act mm-hmm. uh, to where it's almost like a Poison Ivy type thing, Uma Thurman and Batman and Robin of... You don't know if she's lying or if she's just fucking with your head because she's so sexy. You know, she maybe she has a perfume on that's blinding all these people. But Michael Bain, just with his intense, repressed sexual desires, just wants to see her fry. He's just convinced she did it. Yeah, this is this is the moment in the movie where I realized that was Michael Bain. That's where I like I paused to write something down, and then I was like, Michael Bain, what the fuck? And then I saw him. I was like, Oh, the guy with the mustache. Um, like, wait a minute, I know that guy. That's Joe Pantoliano. <laughs> Uh, this is so. This is this sort of interrogation. This this friendly interrogation takes place in front of uh, Chas Palminteri because he's there as her husband and also, I guess, her lawyer, sort of. And yeah, he, he's a his character's a lawyer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, only he he doesn't work for you know the state or whatever. Because at one point, I think it's when they're playing racquetball. He he tells Caruso, you know, you should come just work downtown, <laughs> make some money. I I love that. Yes, Florentino is just kind of. You know, being sexy bored and barely reacting to the questions. Like the the questioning becomes very intimate. At some point they're just point black saying, Hey, did you have sex with this guy? But the one who reacts is Chaz Palmentary. Because he's like, What are you asking my wife? <laughs> he's like, the fuck's that got to do with this? <laughs> and the background, because Caruso's not even doing the interrogation. He's just in the background with his hands in his pockets. He's letting uh uh Michael Bean do all the dirty all the dirty work. it's it, it's a very tense scene. Palminteri, Matt is the character that goes through a full story arc in this. He's so young and full of life and happy at the beginning. And then slowly, you know, he starts getting mad and angry and sad. And then by the end of the movie, he's fucking crazy. It's He's the only character that really experiences a full arc in this. And I think that was uh, smart on Friedkin to give that to Palminteri because I'm not sure an arc like that could have been handled in the the lesser hands of some of the talent in this film. Maybe Ken King. There's nobody else in the cast that's been nominated for an Oscar. I guess not. (laughs) (laughs) So this interrogation, questioning, whatever you want to call it, goes nowhere. Trina's very sexy and, you know, David is powerless to her charm that she exudes. As we mentioned, Michael Bain (laughs) wants her head on a pike. He wants blood. He's like, she did it. She's fucking lying. (laughs) With really no basis. It's like she's got no alibi. He's he's like what movies would eventually make fun of cops for being because their <laughs> arguments were so baseless. 
but it's Michael Bain doing it or Joe Pantoliano, depending on what lighting they're in. And so <laughs> you just believe what he says. You're like, okay. But then when you actually like, like if you just read the subtitles, if you have the movie on mute, you're like, what are you saying? Makes no sense. Of course she didn't do it. <laughs> but then you just justify. You're like, oh, he's one of those guys. That's just, he's just mad at her because she's hot. Yeah. And that, that happens a lot too. As we discussed at the very beginning, we led off with Chaz Palminteri's sex scene. My note just says here, Chaz is not sexy, <laughs> which I think again was a conscious decision because there's really not more of just a, a man that represents virility quite like Chaz Palminteri. So I think this was, he was trying to, I don't know, show that he was weak. That's why he was <laughs> making these mousy noises while he was having sex. And uh, Linda Florentino's just looking at him utterly disgusted. Yeah, she, she gets the the Oscar, the Oscar worthy single tear in this scene. Okay, was that a tear? I thought it was like a bead of sweat from Palminteri coming down. <laughs> I, I assumed it was a tear because of how pathetic his performance was. She has was. no shame. <laughs> Yeah. How pathetic his performance was. <laughs> oh, God. Back at the station, they've come across some videotapes. Uh, they were able to to remaster these videotapes that they found at the, uh, the fuck house. Medford's summer estate where just, I guess it was just used for cooking and sex. That seemed to be the only things that were going on there. They remaster some videotape where some dude is just giving it to a brunette that they believe to be Jade. They're able to still the image. Um, they're able enhance. to pause the Im- <laughs> yes enhance they're able to they're able to pause the video and enhance the image it's like the reveal shot of Idris Elba in Star Trek Beyond <laughs> it's like wait a minute pause that oh my god and Michael Bain even has he leans in it's obvious who she is <laughs> and he leans into the screen and gets like you know almost nose to nose with it and he goes Jesus. And then he pulls his head back. All that was missing was like, you know, a shot of him running arms and knees pumping down the, the hallway. <laughs> we got her. We got her. Uh, but I, what I really enjoyed in this, in this sequence was how, I guess, genuine it felt. Because even before they they get to the big reveal, they're just watching a tape of, you know, two people having sex. They're kind of watching porn. Um, yeah. Because this is consensual. You know, it's not like they're watching something disturbing. It's, it's just like, oh, you just stumbled upon someone's amateur porn. And they're all having a good time. I mean, the, uh, what's the name of our, our favorite cop? Ken King. Yeah, Ken King is there. He's cracking jokes. Uh, even David Caruso, you know, he's leaning back with his hands in his pockets where he kind of has a smirk, like... Yeah, this 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 is a good time, you know. It's like nothing like like three male cops watching porn. <laughs> uh, the only guy that's attempting to be professional is the guy that's operating the machine, the guy that's actually doing the hands. Respect the process. Yes. <laughs> yeah, all that was missing was Vesco Ken King just having like a, a subway foot long, like a hoagie <laughs> or something. <laughs> like David, you're missing the best part. Get over here. <laughs> so this is the big reveal and concordant with this Patrice is going to meet up with David at like a coffee shop or something to discuss Jade. Uh, you know, I know Jade. And so <laughs> uh, everything that has brought you up to the movie at this point does not prepare you for what happens next. He's like in a coffee shop waiting. He sees her walking through the park across the street and she's getting ready to cross the street to come over. And we do see a car kind of stalking her and we see the window come down and you know it's not going anywhere good because the music kind of picks up. But you expect something like maybe someone's going to jump out and grab her or, you know, worst case scenario, drive-by shooting or, you know, something 
to that effect. Something classic. Oh, no. So, <laughs> this car comes careening 150 miles an hour down the road and just full-on blindsides Patrice here. Sends her flying, you know, 15, 20 feet. And then if that wasn't enough, she's already in bad shape. It turns around and then runs over her. Like a la Jessica Biel at the end of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003 <laughs> when she just mows down Arlie Ermey. The car runs over her head. And Caruso runs up like there's a chance she's still alive. And he gets like close to her. He's like, all right, someone call an ambulance. <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, impressive. And uh, I mean, that is, in a way, it's like, well, we shouldn't be surprised. This is Willem Friedkin, right? He's he's a talented, accomplished filmmaker. Uh, and he's basically going to get you. He's, he's going to elicit a reaction from you. and uh, But at the same time, because the movie has been... Uh, you know, it keeps distracting us with all the sexy stuff. So whenever something grotesque happens, it actually, it jolts you. It, in a way, we shouldn't be surprised that something so brutal is happening because of the opening of the movie. We saw that dude hanging from the door and he was covered in blood and all that stuff. But then it's just by the time that this happens, we've gotten comfortable. We've forgotten about that. So you're you're jolted again. It, and that leads into a hell of a, of a car chase. Yes, yes. I have holy shit in all caps on my notes because you're exactly right. Patrice getting hit by the car wasn't, you know, the end of the acceleration. For like the next five or six minutes, this movie just has its foot on the gas because we get an epic, epic car chase. These cars are soaring through the air like they were fucking Superman and Batman. So I guess they go through a kabuki carnival or whatever twice because there's a moment in the chase where everything slows down because they get stuck among a whole bunch of people. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there's... yeah. uh, and I kept waiting for Caruso to just get out of his car and just run and get get to the 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 car in front of him. But it was a it's it's quite a roller coaster ride. And the way it ends, I don't know if if it made you jump, Alex, but it made me jump. Oh yeah, when he he takes him down to the pier and he he can't find the car and he gets fucking t boned and knocked into the water. <laughs> yes, it's like the it's like the the t-boning and uh, whiplash except that this is directed by a real filmmaker <laughs> in fucking caruso's car goes flying he survives though with like not a scratch on him i mean i'm sorry his face gets scratched but he survives and it could have been a lot worse you know part of me was thinking he was going to come out of the water there uh, with like the javier bardem compound fracture from the end of no country for old men <laughs> and he just pays one of the the bums there on the pier and uh you didn't see me. <laughs> That's it for his car, though. I had forgotten. See, I was getting the two big car sequences mixed up. Because earlier in the movie, he also... <laughs> That's funny. So earlier in the movie, somebody cuts his, his brakes, right? He, he, they fuck with his oh, car. Yeah. And so he, he has like this big thing where he just can't brake uh, David Caruso. And he ends up you know, flipping over or something. And he ends up in the hospital. This time, he gets T-boned, which is arguably worse than what happened the first time. <laughs> but he just walks out oh, of that lake. yeah, very much so. He gets, like, T-boned, his car goes flying, and he lands in the water. I mean, there's really... that That's a lot worse than his brakes going out. Because he rolled it a few times, but he, he was okay. He had a concussion. With this, there was so much more that, you know, should have killed him. But he he's had a rough go of it. It was that he's leveled up through all his trials and tribulations. So so he can, you know, his HP has increased. He can just move on without going to the hospital. He got a new trophy awarded after this. The little bring came up. <laughs> you survived imminent death. 
there's infighting with the investigators. Michael Bain thinks that David's just covering it up out of love, lust, whatever it may be for Trina. Uh, we circle back to the cufflink from the beginning of the movie. Does this ever pay off? Uh, yes. At the very end, okay. the uh, Paladin Terry opens uh, his, his cufflink drawer, <laughs> and you see that there's one missing. That's right. So the whole thing with this cufflink was David Caruso knew it belonged to Matt. He just didn't want to rat him out until he was positive it was him. Yes. I, I guess that is the the... I mean, but you don't realize that until, you know, the last two minutes of the movie. Because up till now, I just thought that he he was just protecting Lino Ferentino. Yes. The the weird love triangle that is there. It, did I interpret it correctly that David and Trina dated, but then Matt came along and kind of stole her away? Yes, because at some point, Palminteri tells him that... He just implies that she left him because uh, David... Caruso was not man enough. That's right. They're talking about that in church. Yes. Very appropriate topic. <laughs> appropriate setting. But they're so they're friends. They're friends that have, you know, shared a relationship with Linda Ferentino at different times. It's, Eskimo brothers. Man, so that means if, if Palminteri is telling the truth, can you imagine how bad David Caruso is in bed? Because if <laughs> Linda Ferentino considers Chess Palminteri an upgrade. And what we've seen so far is pretty weak. Yeah. I guess uh David just hands in his pockets the whole time. <laughs> he only fed it out of the hole in his boxers, so he never got naked. So he had his pockets to put his hands in. <laughs> I mean, speaking of appropriate and raising the stakes sexually, we get Matt and Trina called back down to the police station for like a formal investigation or a, for a formal interrogation. And this is where they bust out the the videotape with the actual proof. They're like, that's you on there. It's, it's a and watch so, party. It is. And Matt is obviously infuriated by this. It's like, I didn't come down here to see my wife get fucked by another dude. <laughs> and she explains that it only happened once. She had met this guy at like a fundraiser or something and that uh, she was alone or feeling lonely. And that all she did was cheat on her husband. She didn't think, you know, it was something that she could get arrested for. But she still maintains that she didn't kill anybody. Right. Now, the cops, Caruso included, know or at least assume that she's lying because there's a, the neighbor, the guy that lives across from the fuck house, he's a peeping Tom. That had like his yeah, his rear window set up with yeah. the telescope and everything. Yeah. So he, he actually, I guess he was able to look at everybody that went in. He was able to identify uh, Patrice, Angie Everhart, and... Uh, Later on, when when uh, David Caruso shows him a picture of Linda Ferentino, he's like, "Oh yeah, this woman, yeah, she was here all the time. <laughs> That's Jade. <laughs> <laughs> oh her, oh yeah, she's one of my favorites. Tuesday nights. <laughs> <laughs> Trina goes and visits David that night. Uh, obviously, tensions are high. Tensions are hot between Matt and Trina. She goes to visit David. I guess just to try to decompress. The sexual tension is, you know." You could cut it with a literal knife. You know, you could reach through and just cut it like a big brick of cheese. As David answers the door with his hands in his pockets, <laughs> Trina comes in and uh, gets like within, you know, a whisper of his lips. It's like, can I come in? And he goes, come on in. And he smells her hair. Did you notice that? Yep. <laughs> oh, with the hands in the pockets. So th there we teetered from cool to creepy, but it played <laughs> off beautifully. Naturally, it's going to lead to them. They start making out and heavy petting. 
he makes some offhanded remark about, I know you killed Medford while they're like getting ready to do the deed. And that's obviously not sexy talk as she kind of rejects that and slaps him and walks away and not even the good kind of slapping. <laughs> yeah. Not the, not the one that, uh, that Palminteri probably is into. She slaps him. She leaves. Uh, as she leaves, David gets a phone call of another murder. The peeping Tom was killed pretty brutally, got his head bashed in. So he's dead now. David goes to uh, inspect the scene. He notices that the body's still warm and he's only been dead for maybe an hour. Uh, he says, well, this couldn't have been Trina. She was with me when it happened. So at this point, he kind of you know puts the pieces together, deduces that someone is just covering, I, I guess, the, for lack of a better term, the paper trail here of humans that know what they know that leads back to the governor. It's bigger than just you know this prostitution ring. It's people trying to cover up these uh, bad deeds. So what he knows is that means that Trina is now a target. Jade is the object of desire now of these killers. So before leaving the crime scene, he calls back to the Gavin household. He's trying to get in touch with Matt or Trina. Uh, he reaches their maid and explains, well, if you see either of them, tell them I'm going to my apartment. So by the time he gets back to his apartment, Matt's gone full on crazy and puts a gun to his head and says, did you fuck her? What are you doing? You know, he, he's on. He thinks he's on to him. But really, David just informs him, look, she's in trouble. We got to we got to help her. So they like team up now. They become like the duo to save the day. Yeah, that was that was cool. That's something I, I didn't know I wanted from this movie, and uh, but I got in this sort of climatic sequence, which was the David Caruso, Chess Palminteri team up. Like I, I knew that what this movie was promising me was that I was gonna see them having sex one way or another, but I did not expect them to kind of be sort of buddy cops for ten minutes at the end, which was great. While they're f- forming and. Forging this uh, buddy cop relationship, though, is where we get to the feature attraction. We find out where this poster came from. We get a montage of uh, Linda Fortino having some pretty wild sex with a kind of just a, a body. This this male character has no meaning to the film, correct? Some, some lucky extra. Yes. It's very off-putting and all over the place. Very upsetting. There's like a part where she has pantyhose over her head. And that's kind of the reveal where you see it's her. Even though you recognize the dress and everything, the shot of her with like the pantyhose over her face is the reveal. And it's like, oh, God, I feel so dirty watching this right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, I think that that's one of those things where Friedkin has to have known that anybody would have figured out by now. Right. There's only a handful of main characters and there's really you know, one major female character, which is Linda Frentino, and then there's just the, the other, like, one of the cops is, is, is a woman. And so Angie Everhart's already dead. So odds are that unless Jade is going to turn out to be somebody completely new that we don't know, then odds are that Jade is Linda Frentino. So the way that he surprises you is not with Jay's identity, but just with, with how he reveals it. And it's just, like you said, it's just gross. And again, if you came in thinking, all right, sexy times from the guy that, that wrote uh, Basic Instinct, no, not quite. It's 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 very off-putting. It's upsetting because she like breaks down during it and starts crying and like crawls away from the whole thing. And I think you, as the viewer, have realized that she's reached rock bottom and that she's ready just to continue on with some semblance of normality. So she ends up going back to her home uh, while Matt and David are en route to it. She's surprised and assaulted by two mysterious shadowy figures. And we quickly come to see that one of their identities, it's actually Michael Bain. 
because why not? And when I was watching it, I literally said, watch, it's going to be someone that doesn't make sense like Michael Bain. <laughs> he does get like a full-on reveal, though. But also, I would say minutes after we've already figured out that's him, right? Because it, it's kind of, again, by process of elimination, who else is going to be? It's either him exactly. or, or uh, Ken King, is that his name? Yeah, and he wasn't breathing heavy enough for yeah. it, Like, Ken King has, like, the fucking Hitchcock profile. You would know it was him right away. There's no way to, like, cover him up with shadows. You'd be like, oh, hey, it's Vesco. What's he doing there? Investigating <laughs> another case? <laughs> Bean is, like, kept in the shadows even as he's attacking her. And it's not until uh, David Caruso and Chas Terry break in and start shooting and everything happens. At some point, uh, Caruso pushes this shadowy figure against the wall and then he turns and he gets you know the the big reveal shot he he turns and his face is all bloody and like it's michael bean slash joe pantoliano and the other one is just one of the random cops right the um, other guy in the house yes it's the other guy the, the other cop that's not ken king bane is able to corner uh, trina and attempts to start uh, having her way with her it's very upsetting but fortunately david caruso gets there in time to just start a full-on fight with Michael Bain. And it's like, you know, you talk about the ingenuity of cops sometimes. It just shows how resourceful they are because they're using everything they can in this attic. Like, um, Bain takes some heating wire and almost, like, strangles David Caruso to death. It's fucking nuts. Meanwhile, Matt gets in a shootout with one of the cops but just kills him pretty quickly. So he kills the other cop, and then Matt is able to barge in in the attic, and he shoots Michael Bane three or four times, and right. fortunately that takes him out of the equation. Yeah, by then like the the fight between Bane and uh, Caruso had escalated, and and Bane had like a shovel. He was about to hit uh, Caruso. Well, with it's a an shovel. attic. He got a lot of shit up there. Yeah, yeah. And the entire time, Linda Frontino is just losing her shit. This is this is probably something else that one of the main things I appreciated was that when it got to this part. She had dropped the bored, sexy act, and now she was just scared. <laughs> a real person. Yes. <laughs> Underneath it all, she was, she was just like you and me. But yeah, that was that was that was pretty exciting. I mean, do you can you think of another movie where you're actually rooting against uh, Michael Bean at the end? Because even yeah. in Take Me Home Tonight, he's kind of an asshole, but he means well. Mm-hmm. But here, he's he's full on villain. Yeah, there's nothing redeeming about him in this. Like you said, in Take Me Home Tonight, he still has principles. And, you know, what he's saying, he's an asshole, but what he's saying makes sense and is a good message. And this, he's just concentrated evil, which I think uh, I wasn't sure if that or the uh, pantyhose sex reveal was more off-putting. But either way, they they both... (laughs) This movie is not an easy watch. You talk about a lot of art sometimes. It isn't always easy to watch. This movie asks a lot of you as a a viewer, uh, but I think the end result is worth it. Because we think we figured it out where these cops were acting to protect the governor, uh, but the governor denies any knowledge of it. And then we find out that they weren't even the ones that killed Medford in the first place. Can you explain the ending of this movie to me, Julio? I mean, I can try, but but this is, this is one of those uh, uh, mind benders that probably requires you to, to watch it numerous times. And not just the sexy parts, just all the way through. But as I understand it, because you see Palminteri opening his his cufflink drawer and a cufflink is missing. And so it's it's the cufflink that, that Caruso found in the first crime scene. While he's doing that, Linda Florentino, she's getting ready. They're getting ready to go out. And she's in the bathroom and there's like pictures, like a, 
screenshots. The bathroom is just full of just her greatest hits. All screenshots there. And so Palvin Terry has put them there. And she starts crying and she's like, what the fuck? And he's like, well, I got this from the safe, from Medford's safe after I killed him. So he reveals that he was the killer. And he did it because Medford was trying to blackmail him. And then he tells Linda Frentino, and the the line that closes the movie and provides this this sort of uh, not quite, you know, this sort of disturbing sexy romp, it just turns it into just a really bleak story. Is when uh, Palminteri tells Linda Frentino, next time we have sex, I want to meet Jade. Cut to black, directed by William Fritkin. Fuck. Did you were you were you as soul crushed as I was when he just went full creep at the end? It it was upsetting because he seemed to be like one of the only real guys in the movie, like the one of the real characters, I should say. Uh, that you know he wasn't perfect, but he was pure in his convictions. And then it turns out he was just a crazy creep. And so yeah, I was kind of bummed with the way this ended, and he got away with it. He got away with it, and now Linda Fiorentino is trapped in this really disturbing marriage it's just that uh, she can't do anything because she knows she'll get killed if she does right yeah so it's just i guess it's bleak in the way that the best uh noir stories are where even if the hero triumphs it's still like the world sucks because you think that caruso has come out on top right his final scene is he goes to see the governor with his hands in his pockets, he walks in and he's like, you "Yes, know, he if, does." If anything happens to Linda Florentino, I'll, I'll I'll fucking end your career. I have the pictures that they show you with the hooker. So you think, all right, Caruso's got everything under control. Turns out that no, she's she's in danger from Chas Balmentary, and there's nothing he can do to to prevent that. Life on its side, Jade giveth and Jade taketh away. <laughs> the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Damn it, Friedkin, you did it again. <laughs> Ritkin, you son of a bitch. I wanted to have a good time. I wanted, And I didn't even get to see David Caruso naked. Not once. Not once. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to move this train along to Real Talk, Julio? Let's go to Real Talk. And over here we have a harmony pillow. This pillow allows deeper penetration by positioning both partners most advantageously. It raises the female hips, facilitating male entry. You can inflate the pillow to varying degrees of hardness or softness while enjoying the thrill of rotary and floating action. It's a fuckhouse. It's not just a fuckhouse. He's got a nice little camera over here. And there's another one up here. Low light, high density. Next door neighbor says he saw a lot of women come over here. Hey, did you uh, check out these jam and jellies and clitorifics? I was thinking about you. Honey, if I were you, I'd rip off a few of those butt plugs. They're designed for the perfect asshole. All right, I am recording for Real Talk for Jade. But first, I'm going to give a warm welcome to a new patron. Uh, I don't know his or her uh, actual name, but Nerdrovert, which I guess is a play on introvert or extrovert. Nerdrovert, welcome to the Contrarian's patron family. Uh, welcome to the the contrarian supplements, as we call them. His name could be Trevor, Nerd Trevor, just Robert spelled backwards. And his last name is Dren, Trevor Dren. I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking outside the box here. <laughs> All right, that I I like it. 
but just to be safe, we'll call him or her Nerdrovert. Nerdrovert, I like your your alias. And uh, now you will have access, like all our other patrons, to uh, all the deleted stuff that doesn't make it into this episode, as well as any other audio clips that we uh, decide to throw in. This month, for example, our bonus patron episode was picked by Dan Brennick, one of our patrons, and we're going to be talking about Under the Silver Lake, uh, which is a movie that neither Alex or I have seen. Looking forward to that. We have not. Uh, But anyway, as far as the extended plug segment, uh, Alex, I am going to be plugging this uh, documentary called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Uh, Again, another installment of my my attempts to to throw some attention uh, on smaller movies that are not big franchises or uh, just big Hollywood remakes, uh, what have you. The kind of things that you don't like. Yes. And, and this one has an extra special feature in a way because our friend Ben from Film Busters actually interviewed the main actor, the, the main character in the movie, uh, and they have this interview on their Film Busters uh, website. So I guess... The way that you do this is you listen to our extended plug segment, then you watch the movie, then you go watch Ben's interview with the guy, which I thought it was text. So when he first told me about it, I was like, oh, I'm just going to read it before the show. Uh, but no, it's an actual, like, he did it, like, over Zoom, and they recorded the call. So it's like a one-hour interview. So that's that's what I'm doing when, uh, when we're done recording. <laughs> but... Uh, what do you have to plug? Uh, I guess it would be a plug. I'm just interested in having a discussion with you about certified copy. I finally, either you or Eddie got that for me years ago. Uh, I'm just trying to go through my movie collection and watch movies that I never have. Like I mentioned a lot of times, I still have a good amount of my collection and its original shrink wrapping. So last night it was between certified copy or... Showgirls? No, 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 no. Uh... Oh, fuck, what's that Marion Cotillard movie? Is it Two Days, One Night? Yes. Something like that? Yeah. Uh, my sister didn't want to watch that, though, so we picked Certified Copy, and I was wanting to discuss it with you because it's quite a fascinating piece of business. Yeah. So we will be discussing that with the Binoche, Juliette Binoche. <laughs> yes. And all her glory. All right. Well, that sounds great. Uh, if that sounds like something uh, you non-patrons would like, then uh, just... Join our patron, and you'll have access to all that good stuff. Uh, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash contrarianprime, and that's where uh, you join. You just select your tier and uh, and just join the contrarian supplements. It's what? the the Our tiers are $1, $3, $5, and $10. Yes. So there's definitely a... A selection there. You can stick to the value menu or you can, you know, get the filet mignon. It's it's all there. The whole kit and caboodles there. So yeah, to all our current Patreons, thank you very much. Always welcoming new applications. So head on over, give it a look, tell us what you think. Now, Julio, we can move on to real talk for Jade. At some point in this, if it hasn't happened already, I will have the sound clip of Seth Rogen and 40-Year-Old Virgin telling Steve Carell, be David Caruso in Jade, when he's trying to explain to him how to talk to women. Oh, yeah. We, we're going to uh, we're gonna have to dissect that statement, because I don't know if I, if I get it now that I've seen Jade. Do you not remember that scene in the movie? It's like... Oh, I remember uh, the scene. I just don't understand what Rogen is asking him to do. But maybe you and I appreciate David Caruso's performance in this movie differently. Oh, since we're in real talk, I think the whole point of that entire thing is like the joke is that Steve Carell immediately understands what he means. 
Like he's like be David Caruso and Jade and Steve Carell's like, oh, okay. Like I think that's the joke because there's like, yeah, there's nothing inherently sexy about David Caruso pockets in this movie. Uh, <laughs> right. He didn't say like be like De Niro and Rochester Kill or <laughs> Mike Douglas and his entire filmography. Exactly. Exactly. You know that's David Caruso and Jade. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know if I'm missing something. Here. I think you're overthinking the joke, Julio. Oh no, I'm just talking now about the movie in general. Like, the, oh, the, oh, this the, movie's missing a lot of things. <laughs> I just the decision to put David Caruso as the main character. It almost seems like intentionally doing the wrong thing. You know what I mean? Like Caruso is very talented, but I don't think that this was the right vehicle for him as a leading man. But I could be wrong. I don't know. Like, I guess we can talk about it. This and Kiss of Death with Nicolas Cage were the movies that he left NYPD Blue uh, to make and become a Hollywood movie star. And both of them were pretty famous bombs. Uh, Jade, I think a tad more so just because these erotic thrillers from the 90s, man, they, they certainly have their place in history. And we talk about this so often because we want to play the we're old guys card, but... I really do think if you were born after the year 2000, these type of movies like have no real, I mean, the appeal is there, but having lived through these movies, you know what I mean? Of like, yeah, that was like a a standard trope for like 10 years. These movies would come out that were rooted. The whole idea was that it was deceit, but it was based in a sexual manner. Mm -hmm. Um, And it provides such a kind of fun sense of nostalgia. I know they tried like a minor, to bring these back in like a minor way. What was that movie with Liam Neeson and um, was it called Chloe? Like oh, Julianne Moore. Yeah. There were, I remember during that time there was a couple attempts at bringing back the erotic thriller, but I think it was just, we're too cool for that now. Yeah. We're David Caruso. Our hands are firmly in our pockets. Our postmodern hand placing in our pockets. It's uh, it's not the time anymore. Um, but oh, here we go. An estimated budget of fifty million dollars for a return of less than ten million. Oof. So, wh- how did this movie? Ha- okay, I was gonna ask how did this movie have a budget of fifty million dollars, but then I remembered that fucking car chase scene. <laughs> well, Fritkin has to get paid. That's also very true. Uh, just running down the stats here, uh, as we mentioned uh, numerous times in the first half, directed by William Friedkin of uh, Take Your Pick. What, what is he of of what fame is William Friedkin for you, Julio? So to me, he's always been, even though I haven't seen the movie yet, he's always been the guy behind The Exorcist. Now, as far as movies I've seen, like I told you before we started recording Bug, and then you reminded me about, uh, I was going to say Chicken Joe, <laughs> Killer Joe. <laughs> I mean, it's close enough. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, I had forgotten that he was the, the French Connection guy. I also haven't seen it. But I I always, I guess I was getting that mixed up with a guy from Reindeer Games. Yeah, that happens to me sometimes, too. You're thinking of uh, John Frankenheimer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you are right, Julio. Even though you haven't seen The Exorcist, was it just preposterous? Uh, it is. It should always be the movie that people think, oh, yeah, William Friedkin. But now we have Jade to add <laughs> to that uh, memorable lineup that he has there. Um, it's, uh, it's William Fritkin's The Exorcist and Jade's William Fritkin. <laughs> Fair enough. 
Uh, so not like The Exorcist, uh, Jade was nominated for a couple of awards. They were not Academy Awards. They were Golden <laughs> Raspberries for Worst Screenplay and Worst New Star uh, for Caruso. Aww. Both categories lost to Showgirls, which will come back up here in about two months. That was also written by Joe uh, Esterhaus. I, I devote at least some t- energy before our Showgirls episode into Julio and I figuring out how to properly pronounce his last name. Um, not too much in the way of, you know, really interesting material to go off of. There's an unrated director's cut, uh, which featured additional scenes and more explicit sexual footage and an additional 12 minutes that was released on uh, a now out-of-print VHS. The <laughs> thea- <laughs> yeah. The theatrical cut it was used for DVD and Blu-ray editions. Uh, the planned unrated versions for DVD, Laserdisc, and Blu-ray were canceled due to poor sales of the original VHS. Uh, the original version was available for a short time on Hulu. So I guess we have to track down a copy of that. It's the new producer's cut of Halloween 6, <laughs> the Jade unrated cut. What kind of conventions do you have to go to where they would be trafficking on the on the Jade director's cut bootleg? Jesus. Th- those are like darker corners of the internet than where you go to watch like a beheading video or where you go to like <laughs> steal someone's identity. There's like a darker level of that and it's the unrated cut of uh, Jade. Cable channels USA, Cinemax, and WGN aired the director's cut. That must have been like, I remember USA for a while was like the sexy channel. Uh, they had the show called Silk Stockings and like an action sexy thriller called La Femme Nikita. Uh, I just remember because obviously WWF was always on USA and they always showed these commercials. and So that makes sense Jade was on there. They used to show kind of more risque movies uh, for the time at least in the uh, mid to late 90s. The role of Trina was turned down by Julia Roberts and Sharon Stone and also was initially turned down by uh, Linda Florentino because uh, she didn't <laughs> want to play a prostitute. So they went back and just kind of rewrote it. So they had to get someone to latch onto it. Our boy uh, Esterhaus hated the movie. He said it was changed so much that he wanted his name off of it. He was gonna like, I guess, take him to court to get his name removed. Oh, removed. His, yeah. I'm sorry, but we've seen, we've seen Sliver. <laughs> he wrote that too, yeah. right? So yes, it, I I do I resent the idea that he has like this artistic message that he's trying to get across in this. So, but he ended up just getting paid more money for that, so it worked out for him. Said somewhere between two and four million. I, I've actually read, I don't know if I mentioned this. I know we didn't have time to mention it during Sliver. And I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but I've actually read Joe Esterhaz's book. He, he wrote a book about Hollywood and uh, it was like a dollar purchase uh, at Barnes and Noble. Uh, and you went back and asked for your money back? <laughs> you know, anyway, the point is reading that book. He comes across, because it's written in the first person, he comes across as exactly the kind of guy you picture when you're trying to figure out, like, okay, who would write this? You know, who, <laughs> who, who would have this, this you know, list of credits, you know? It's like the basic instant guy who's also the sliver guy, who's also the jade guy, who's also the showgirls guy. Oh, it's this guy, and he wrote a book that just basically is, is just an extension of his personality. He's, uh, it's just... A compilation of Hollywood anecdotes, and most of the time he's talking shit about someone, you know, kind of like trying to show how much of an insider he is and how much he knows about the industry, mm. uh, and kind of bragging about how much money he was able to 
to make because he cracked the formula, uh, I guess, in the 90s. It, he doesn't come across as a, a pleasant person. And maybe that's just, you know, I'm making a hell of an assumption based on a book that he wrote. But again, it, it, that's kind of the, you know, that seems like that would be a window into his his psyche. Uh, so is he this sort of misunderstood genius that is constantly in, uh, in this position where he has to renounce the movies after they've been produced? Or is it just a guy that, you know, just can't see that maybe the script was shitty to begin with? <laughs> That's why the movie ended up being the way it was. I don't know. I mean, I know that the... Hollywood can trash your script, but it, when you're making so much money out of it, I, I don't know. It, it just feels weird. It's the uh, Principal Skinner thing. Am I really so out of touch? No. It's the children who are wrong. That's the <laughs> that's how that guy looks at all his scripts. Esther Haas. Uh, and then just uh, the additional things I found interesting. Warren Beatty turned down the role of David Corelli. Just imagine Warren Beatty, hands in his pockets. <laughs> I mean, Warren ba- I love Chaz Palminteri and Michael Bain. And, uh, you know, there's some good performances in this movie. But Warren Beatty is so m- monumentally above something like this <laughs> that it's... <laughs> It's insulting that he was offered it in the first place. Did he laugh? I hope he had a good laugh. Yeah. I hope he had a good sense of humor about the whole thing. <laughs> he just laughed. Get your hands off my phone. All right. <laughs> he just uh, called up his agent. Hey, you're fired. <laughs> yeah. You let this guy talk to me? You're out of here. <laughs> and then finally, just because this is so good and also just puts the exact timestamp on it that you would need. When O.J. Simpson's trial of the century ended with a not guilty verdict, he stated to the press that he was going to see this movie. Just O.J. <laughs> I'm going to see Jade. God bless and take care. It's like, you know what the J in O.J. stands for? Jade. Jade. Uh, okay, enough talk about O.J. That's We're good. Let's move on here to uh, the actual feature attraction, which is Jade. Not the unrated version, which is now a... a a uh, a quest of mine, a holy grail to obtain <laughs> the Jade unrated VHS. This is how we'll celebrate when the Contrarians can record together once again. We can watch a movie at the same time in the same room. Yes, I'll get like a really shitty projector and hook it up to a VHS player and just project it on like a rear wall in my backyard. We'll have a barbecue and watch, watch Jade outdoors very loudly in my neighborhood. <laughs> In the director's cut, uh, Palminteri's sex scene is a lot more, uh, I guess, honorable. <laughs> Let's embarrass It's him. actually, you see his face. It's like a split screen of the back of his head and his face just going to town on it. All right. So, Julio, this still was uh, 14%. So there are some people that like it. What were those people saying? Alex, there's only two fresh quotes out of the limited collection of quotes uh, of the Rotten Tomatoes website. So I got two fresh ones from Rotten Tomatoes, and then I I went to Letterboxd for one final positive. Uh, But uh, first, I have Michael Dequina from TheMovieReport.com, who says, a fairly suspenseful and entertaining thriller, Uh, which I think gives the movie too much credit, but I guess we'll we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, Entertaining is a word I would accept. Yes. I mean, if you're in the right mood for it, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Then Jeffrey M. Anderson from Combustible Celluloid says it's a good, solid thriller with some terrific touches by Friedkin and some truly bizarre ones by Ezertas. I'm guessing the, the pubic hair was Ezertas's touch and the car chases were uh, Friedkin's. 
Who's, whose pubes were that? My pubes have never been that long before. Like, who... <laughs> people just growing a bush like a pineapple top, man. <laughs> and then just, like, using, I guess, uh, gardening scissors to just fill up the container. Yeah, that old fucker... Uh, I, I forgot his name every time I wanted to talk about him in Contrarian's Corner. Medford just comes out of the closet with fucking garden shears. Or no, he uses that hatchet to cut off the pubes. <laughs> That's so weird. I, I I wouldn't put myself through the entire screenplay of Jade, but I would like to see that page. Like, how 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 much How is that written? <laughs> how much space did he use for the description of that, you know, I don't know, 10 seconds of the movie? Um, it's it's three pages of the script. <laughs> Color, texture, length. Uh, <laughs> all right. And finally, like I said, jumping over to Letterbox, where Brian J gave Jade four stars. And he says, This only bombed because people wanted to show David Caruso they were pissed he left NYPD Blue. And they had a right to be pissed because that was a great show and he had a lot to do with its success. But Caruso, in his defense, had a right to be a movie star. He has a charisma unlike any other actor, a steely intensity that makes him captivating when he's on the screen. He has held his own with, and even outshined, much bigger names who have shared the screen with him. He didn't deserve the treatment he got for only trying to achieve a dream. It was a shot he earned. He had paid his dues, but the audiences wouldn't let him have it. God damn, dude. <laughs> Signed, David Caruso. <laughs> I was going to say, Caved DeRusso wrote that review. <laughs> um... I think that's that's the starting point for me, Alex. I mean, there's there's plenty of things that don't work for me in this movie, but David Caruso. Tell me how you feel about David Caruso. Do you do you believe uh, David Caruso like in general and David Caruso in this movie? What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, before I forget, while you're going through those quotes, and thank you for doing that, uh, your research is always grand, and that last one was <laughs> hilarious to finish on. Uh, Jade, the unrated version, nowhere to be found on eBay. There, <laughs> damn it! Looks like you can get one on Amazon for around ten dollars. Yeah, it's kind of anticlimactic, really. I expected more. I did too. I was bummed. I was hoping it was going to be like you know five hundred dollars or some shit like that. <laughs> uh, but more fascinating, it's actually on Amazon Prime. Uh, you have to pay to watch it, you know, because Amazon Prime, we, that's where we watched it. Right. You can pay $2.99 to watch the Jade Director's Cut on Amazon Prime. And it's only $2.99 because it's only in standard definition because it looks like it's just the <laughs> capture from the VHS. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's completely different sheen. Yeah, 104, or excuse me, an hour and 47 minutes, that additional 12 minutes of, it's just 12 more minutes of fucking Trina's head in pantyhose. Just staring into oh the camera, God. into the great void. David Caruso, um, this movie kind of epitomizes him to me. That That's David Caruso, the ginger top, chin kind of up in the air. I, I'm miming it physically right now to myself. <laughs> the dead eyes, really no emotion, an occasional shoulder shrug, you know, your hands in your pockets, and then... You, you always knock off a one-liner before you turn your head or you walk away or something like that. I mean, I think from my limited viewing of NYPD and CSI, I'm not going to ever claim that you know I can recite those shows page and verse. I think television acting suits him better. And I think the type of audience, which again, we've talked about this before, 
um, I've, I use that line so often, but it's true. We, we reference a lot of, we're a very self-referential podcast, but what we've talked about is that something that's happened over the past few years and has been accelerated maybe the past five is there's really not too much of a separation anymore between television audiences and movie going audiences. It's just kind of all one big trough now, whereas the waning years of that would have been the early 2000s when CSI was really big. Uh, and, you know, he was obviously the the main attraction on that. And the types of people that would watch those shows and be like big television viewers are the types of people that would respond well to his acting uh, and his his style, his presence. And I'm not saying he's bad because I, I do kind of enjoy him in this movie and I think it kind of fits with the tone that it's going for. Now, whether or not I think it's genuinely good or good and kind of a fun, let's point at this and watch it happen type of way is mm-hmm. a different story. But I think that what we always say, uh, at least for a period of time, there was a big difference between being able to be a television actor and be a movie actor. And I think the fact that someone like him of prominence before he went into film and then when he left film showed that up until the mid 2000s, at least, that still was a very real thing. His whole David Caruso-ness, I don't think (laughs) I, I, I don't have anything against him, so I'm not trying to be mean, but I would say I don't think he's a powerful enough actor to carry a movie. I do think he's a powerful enough person to carry something that you're going to watch for 12 minutes, take a break, come back to it repeat repeat but an hour and a half movie i don't think he is strong enough to carry it i think what would have been interesting is if you flipped him and chaz palmentary's roles because obviously chaz palmentary is strong enough to carry a movie and what's asked of him in this is silly for him so that's (laughs) i know i'm jumping the gun and kind of springboarding off your question about david caruso but that's kind of my opinion on him uh what about yourself do you do you put any uh, weight into that idea of television acting versus movie acting? Uh, yes, along general lines. The thing is, though, I haven't seen any of uh, Caruso's TV work, so I can't. I can just take your word for it that it works. You know, uh, I have seen like like I mentioned, Contreras Corner. I have seen that movie. Uh, it's called Mad Dog and Glory. Uh, mm-hmm. You might have heard of it. Robert De Niro plays a cop. Surprise, <laughs> and uh, Bill what? Murray plays a mobster, and. Uh, if I remember correctly, De Niro saves Bill Murray's life, not knowing he's a mobster, maybe. I don't know. And uh, Bill Murray, as a reward, sends De Niro Uma Thurman. He sends him a woman. Uh, okay. Yeah, it, it's a comedy. It, it's it's kind of an action comedy. I don't remember much beyond that, other than uh, Robert De Niro's partner is David Caruso. So he plays a supporting role in that movie. And he, from what I remember, steals the movie. Because De Niro is supposed to be kind of meek, mild-mannered in the movie. And Caruso is supposed to be a hothead. And uh, and it works. The contrast between them is really good. I just remember walking away from that experience thinking, man, David Caruso is pretty cool. And that was not at all what I got in this movie. I don't know that he can't carry a feature film, but I don't think that he was the right pick for this one, certainly. And that is a really good idea, like a really good point that you could have swapped them, him and Palmin Terry, and the movie would have worked much better. It's less, uh, I guess it's less creative casting, but it's more effective for sure. Because I don't think that, when I look at David Caruso in this movie, I just don't find him... uh, 
I don't know, I guess his presence doesn't do enough to like anchor the movie. He seems, it's not even that he seems aloof. I just found him unremarkable. <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of try to play that across as, as a positive in Contrarian's Corner. Uh, but he's a little too much of the everyman here. But not even that, because if he was just the everyman, he would be much more disturbed and devastated by what happens in the movie. But instead, he's just kind of, eh, he's just there. So this, I, I think that it's not that this movie doesn't work for me because of David Caruso, but it certainly starts there. And then, you know, like a cancer, it just spreads everywhere else. Jesus. <laughs> uh, I think his approach and his whole David Caruso-ness, as I said, uh, I think the whole idea of David Caruso could work in a movie like this, but the problem is you can't have that be the lead. Uh, if the whole movie was like a character that was kind of his yin to his yang to play off of, then that kind of works, but kind of having this really melancholic... Uh, he's not even devil may care. It's almost like he's just intentionally kind of whatever. It, <laughs> when your main character is as passive as he is or kind of gives the impression he doesn't really give a fuck, it's hard for your audience to. So that would be my take on that. As yeah. far as other things that don't work, it's a much bigger issue than just David Caruso. I mean, the the plot doesn't make much sense, I think is a nice way of putting it. And then especially like the, I guess, quote unquote twist at the end mm -hmm. makes even less sense than what led up to it. It's like, okay, well, why, why was Michael Bain killing these hookers yeah, to it, impress the governor? Okay. It's, I mean, it's just, it's... Plot twist for the sake of plot twisting rather than... I mean, you can justify it, right? They, I think they put enough scenes of uh, Michael Bean acting shady in the movie to where you can just buy that he was he was just in the governor's pocket the entire time and he was just doing his dirty work. But... Uh, We've said it before about Michael Bain. Why did that guy... Why wasn't he more? Like, he's great. His, his little part in this, mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. his his character's motivations and what he does doesn't really make sense. But God, he's just he's great. Every time he's on screen, I'm like, hell yeah, more Michael Bain. Yeah, he he's great. I really liked. He's so intense. He has the yeah. intensity that I wanted from David Caruso. I think. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I think I fear that I would be asking too much of this movie if I wanted it to have any sort of substance. Right? It's it, it would be kind of. On me yes. for expecting that from an erotic thriller from the 90s. It's like, I shouldn't ask it from Sliver. I shouldn't ask it from Basic Instinct. I certainly shouldn't ask it from Jade. But still, <laughs> it just kind of, it's it's so empty by the time that it's all over. I just, what was the fucking point? Other than, and I don't think this was its purpose, but other than launching David Caruso's career as a leading man in movies, you know, it's like, why would you make this movie? It, it, it doesn't do anything, even unless those missing 12 minutes are really, really fucked up. <laughs> it's not even like it pushes the envelope as far as just, oh, Jay, that really disturbing movie, right? It has very off-putting scenes. That whole sex montage towards the end where Linda Florentino is just not being abused by this guy, but, you know, it just it, it's unpleasant to look at, right? But that's kind of as far as it goes. And then the the ending, that final twist and that final like line from Paul and Terry, it's so mean-spirited that it feels like it should have some purpose behind it. You know what I mean? Like you don't end your movie with that, or at least you shouldn't end your movie with that if you're not saying 
anything else, like if you don't have a bigger point to make. Because otherwise, what are you saying really that Linda Florentino had it coming? That's what she gets for like for fucking around on Chess Palminteri. Again, it's on me for trying to impose some sort of morality on the on the world of this movie. Because really, I guess it it's really been made to titillate, to just really have a murder mystery and have some sex scenes and just get its audience riled up about about the blood and the gore and the sex. But uh, it's not like you're supposed to walk away from it thinking about anything else. And still, you know, I guess... But still, like... I, I guess I would just expect more from Friedkin. Yeah. Because like you said, the, the ending is mean-spirited because what you've gone through with it, at the very minimum, the character you should be sympathetic towards in the end is Trina because she was, like, falsely accused of murder. Uh, she lives this second life as a prostitute that she's really not, like, happy about and wants to get out of. And then it finally, you know, she's assaulted at the end and she's attempted to be raped and killed. And so, like, she is able to persevere and you're kind of thinking that maybe she gets, like, a second lease on life or gets to, uh, you know, start anew. And then you find out that she's just going to be in this abusive relationship where if she tries to get out, she's going to get killed and just sexually abused constantly. So the ending is like, oh, well, it makes the movie feel like a waste. Like, if the movie, like, ended... Like, you find out Chaz Palminteri did it, and then she just pulls a gun out and shoots him, and she's like, I am Jade. That'd be so much more fitting to how ludicrous the entire movie is. So for the ending to have, like, this kind of just, oh, come on, man. I can't in good conscience now recommend it, because it's an hour and a half of mindless fun. It is until that ending, and then you're just like, eh, that kind of makes me feel gross. Yeah. It's too dark for... It, it, that ending for it to work it needs a better movie backing it up i think oh yes so then to jade herself linda florentino quite the sporadic run in hollywood uh she's very hot very 90s sexy as you mentioned and put very prophetically in the uh, first half master wordsman with that one cuz i agree <laughs> that like bored hot <laughs> Very, like, yeah, 90s sexy. Uh, but I'm looking here at Linda Florentino did another movie with Chaz Palminteri in 2009 called One More with Feeling. Is this one that you're familiar with? No. An independent direct-to-video comedy drama film written by Gina O'Brien and directed by Jeff Lipsky. It's a, a story of a man pursues his old dream of becoming a singer by performing karaoke. Man, I hope she gets the upper hand on this one. <laughs> It's just like this kind of fun, feel-good movie, and then she kills him in the last 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> this is for Jade, motherfucker. Anyway, what are your thoughts on her in this movie? Uh, see, that's weird, because I, I have zero problem kind of talking about how much uh, Caruso didn't work for me, and yet for some reason I feel guilty when I'm about to say pretty much the same thing about Linda Florentino. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think maybe because I know that Caruso ended up kind of landing on his feet and going back to TV and just having steady work. I don't know what happened to the to the career of Lena Ferentino, you know, post nineties, but I know she was she was a thing for a little bit. And what I want to say is from what I've seen of her, which is The Last Seduction, Dogma, Men in Black, and Jade. Just going from those four movies, her range seems to be very limited. I kind of alluded to it in Contrarian's Corner uh, that, you know, just kind of like the, I'm bored and I'm hot is kind of the, the, the standard there. 
right? She does it in, in Men in Black. She does it in this movie, she does it in Last Seduction. And it works in different degrees. Like, I think she's really good in Men in Black. I think that that's putting her against Will Smith. That's great contrast. In this movie, I it just doesn't work. She seems disinterested most of the time. Uh, she comes alive a couple times. She has a brief argument with Chaz Palminteri when they come back from the police station after after the watch party, when everybody's watched the, her sex tape. Uh, yes. They have, you know, she, she, they yell at each other. She, she tells him that she knew what he'd been up to, that she knew that he'd been cheating on her. And then he asked her, is that why you did it? And that's, to me, that's when she felt like a, like a, like a person, like a real person. And then towards the end, I, I think we mentioned it when she's, her life is in real danger and she's just freaking out because all these men are, you know, trying to kill her or trying to protect her. Uh, but most of the time, she just seems like, I don't know, just like, not even, it's not even bored, but just like, she couldn't care less. Her scene, this is just bad acting, if you ask me. The scene where she goes to do, to have her lecture and she is kind of reading off cards, but also addressing the 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 students or whatever, the people oh, it's there. very bad. It feels like she is... It feels like she's reading off a, of cue cards, but she doesn't know how to do it. It's that bad. And it's like, why would you do that? Why not have her... I mean, this is a capable actress. Why not have her just deliver the speech like she would normally? Instead, they have this awkward thing where it just seems... It's not that, that she... She's that acting seems, like a high school student that doesn't want to do a, like a lecture or a presentation or something. Right. And there is no reason. There, there's absolutely no reason why she would you know why her character would act this way because mm-hmm. what happens next is her just calling getting naked and calling Chas Palminteri on the phone and being like hey <laughs> i miss you this is kind of weird i mean if if her poor performance in the previous scene is meant to indicate that she's kind of tired and disinterested in her job it doesn't work but instead it just comes across as her being it just comes across as bad acting why is she naked when she calls him because dude it'd been 10 minutes they needed some <laughs> titillation for the audience <laughs> i i don't know it, it i don't i don't think i think the movie i think the reason i feel weird criticizing her being hard on her performance is because i think the movie treats her poorly like as you know as a character and as an actress i think that they ask her to, out of the three leads she's the only one that's kind of asked to debase herself in front of the camera you know, like mm-hmm. uh, Caruso doesn't even take his clothes off. In Palminteri, you get to see his naked back. That That's about it. Linda Frentino is actually, uh, uh, as disinterested as she looks through the movie, she's asked to, you know, just get naked and romp around uh, on a bed with multiple strangers. It, it's just, and for what? You know, it doesn't really amount to anything. So it's just, yeah, it, it doesn't work for me. I don't know if maybe she could just kind of sense what kind of movie she was in. I mean, didn't you say that she turned it down at first? <laughs> so yeah. she must have, you know, decided that it was worth doing it or that she had to do it. But maybe she wasn't entirely happy about that decision uh, anyway. So I don't know. It, it's a no for me, dog. Yeah, it's like the chase scene, the car chase scene so fucking cool. And some of the dialogue is fun. Chaz Palminteri is good. It's, but like you said, the, I mean, William Friedkin has, if you look at his movies, there's a, a history of debasing, uh, women, but with a purpose, 
I mean, that sounds <laughs> like I'm I'm encouraging that kind of thing. But you know, if you look at Killer Joe, right? Yeah, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly. But, but there's where a I was going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah, it's a fucking weird movie, and it's like, uh, and by that point in the movie, if it doesn't have you, I could see like wanting to walk out of like when he just starts beating up Gina Gershon. Mm-hmm. But it's. Joe's crazy and it feels like there's something to why this is going on. And it, even the shot where she answers the, like the first shot of the movie where she answers it completely like bottomless, uh, it helps to establish just like the, the characters that we're dealing with here and, uh, the environment that these people are in with this. It's just kind of like the easiest thing to point to is, um, Trina just naked calling him on the phone, just to result in her husband cheating on her, getting a blowjob from some other woman. It's none of this really pays off in the end. There's no like vindication or, you know, the, there's just no reason to it. Um, and obviously there's, there's other movies that Friedkin's done. It's not just this and killer Joe, but I think obviously if you're going to talk about movies where he puts women in compromising situations, if you've seen killer Joe, that's likely first, that's going to come to mind. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate that he found himself, I mean, I don't know. What what were the logistics? How did this script land in front of him? And he decided, all right, I can do something with it. There's a couple of cool car chases that I can <laughs> I can jazz up and then I'll find something, I'll figure something out regarding the sex. Uh I don't know. You can tell though that there's a good filmmaker behind this. You know what yeah. I mean? Like the 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 way that it's shot is it's good. It's just uh you know, not just the chase, uh, the car sequences, but also uh, just the way that he stages the confrontations, and I think that the way that he uh, handles the the supporting cast. It's not Michael B. I mean, we I, at least I wasn't kidding. In Contreras Corner, Ken King is amazing. Yes, yeah, I wasn't kidding either. He's an early front runner for the Embry for best supporting actor, and it's. I was trying to, as we've recorded this, find some kind of mini bio on him. He only did. Uh, Jade and some movie called Big Eden from 2000. And that's like his only two nods, which is so weird because he comes across as just like someone who's been doing this for years in uh, this movie. Yeah, it, it's he's just a natural, I guess. Uh, I really hope that his other movie is better than this one, though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, he's great. And it, it just, uh, I mean, it's obviously... I always say it's ultimately on the director, but uh, but I think that it's the bigger problem is the screenplay. And I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm I would be mildly curious to see what Joe Esther has has to say as far as specifically what what changed, what's missing, what what went wrong in the making of Jade. I'm certainly more interested in that than in Twelve Extra Minute from Friedkin. But it I. I don't know. I guess it's just that I can't. I look at the 90 minutes plus that we got, and I don't know how that was ever uh, a more profound, a more engaging, more successful story uh, without just almost like, you know, getting rid of most of it and just starting from scratch. Yeah, it's it's too short for me to say this is a disaster, but it's it's not good. It has a few things in it that seem to work okay, but really about halfway through it with Michael Bain and then uh, Angie Everhart, I was like, I kind of just wish I was watching Take Me Home tonight right now instead. (laughs) 
But as we've said, that happens in so many movies that we do. Why can't this movie just be Take Me Home Tonight? Why can't we just do that? Uh, But yeah, Friedkin, this was sandwiched in between Blue Chips, which was a movie with Nick Nolte and Shaquille O'Neal, and then uh, Rules of Engagement, which I've never seen. Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson. Have you seen that? I've seen the poster. Isn't Tommy Lee Jones wearing like a, a beret? Yeah. Samuel's doing the salute. People had such a hard on for big faces on posters at the turn of the millennium. <laughs> ben Kingsley's in that? My God. Guy Pierce? What a lineup. Uh, I mean, like I said, if the ending was a bit more fun and crazy, I could say, hey, put this on in a movie. It's dumb and fun. Um, but for a movie that doesn't stick much, it specifically doesn't stick the landing. So. I would advise people to pass. There are better erotic thrillers out there. I think we may be covering some in the weeks, to, months to come, uh, but we'll see. It's for what it's like. I said there these movies. There's an entire catalog of them, and I think we'll have a better idea of the the ranking of them uh, here in the next two months or so. At least the ones we cover. It's scary to think that it could get worse. Uh Showgirls is pretty rough, man. <laughs> it's uh showgirls and decent proposal and what's the third one crash crash oh well crash is revered pretty highly by some people i mean it's david cronenberg it's it's more respectable <laughs> yeah the movie where these people get off to car wrecks and people dying is more respectable than this <laughs> all right julio so that is jade that kicks off our uh alternating sexy thriller movie arc I I guess I would say a D because like I said, I had enough fun watching this and it's not long enough to be an absolute disaster. But at the same time, I can't particularly say I could see a situation where I'm going to be motivated to go out of my way to watch this again. So I'm going to say just a dead center D. What about yourself? Um, I'm going to give it two stars. I, I was kind of like during real talk, I worked myself up to like, fuck this one star. But but that's because I just don't have much to say about the things that work, you know? Yeah. Uh, Ken King, the, the, I mean, I think that we, we just praise Ken King enough in Contrarian's Corner. And, uh, and then the, the chase scenes, I mean, they're, they're effective, you know, and you're right. I mean, it's 90 minutes and it, it was just kind of a, an easy watch, all things considered. It's just not good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but at the same time, I would be like, if you're curious, yeah, you could do worse. You know, if, if if you're curious about this type of movie in the '90s, it's kind of uh, it, it's not that it's required watching in the sense that you must watch it because it's good. But I think it just paints a picture the way that you know Sliver paints a picture and Basic Instinct paints a picture of what it was like in that landscape in the '90s. One thing I did want to call out before we bring it home here is the chase scene where David Crusoe runs against the car and they're doing those ridiculous jumps through the hills of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. They used the same audio drop of someone going, hey, you asshole. They used the same audio drop twice within like 30 seconds <laughs> oh, no. of each other. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that and I was like, oh, God. Friedkin was asleep at the wheel. Take it, <laughs> take it away from him. All right. So that was Jade. Uh, two episodes from now, we are covering Indecent Proposal. Mm, that is correct. Yes. 
two episodes. Yes. But what follows next, Julio? Well, so up next is going to be a challenging episode of The Contrarians. That's our uh, bonus pick, bonus patron pick from uh, uh, for January. And that's from Dan Bredick, who, like I said, he picked uh, Under the Silver Lake for the patron feed uh, along the lines of the Blues the Warmest Color episode that we did last month. But for the mainstream feed... He's giving us Beasts of No Nation, which is, uh, it was the first Netflix original movie. Uh, it stars Idris Elba. And it's, I mean, talk about bleak. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a it's bleak gonna, movie. <laughs> it's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard one. <laughs> I was already reading about it. I was like, oh, God. Yes. Uh, I've seen it once. And, uh, and I think that Dan just wants me to elaborate on my feelings about it. And, and now you're being, a, I guess, a... You're being collateral damage, Alex. <laughs> You're coming along for the ride. Awesome. So that is what lies ahead. Closing us out here, we move into perennial plugs. Start, as always, with the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They open us up with Last Stand. Take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head on over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our logo, as well as all the graphics on our Patreon and on our upcoming merch, that's all courtesy of Hans Ruth Wieser. Hans is an artist, a podcaster, a novelist. He does so many things, and we are very lucky that he shares some of his talent with us. Uh, you can check out Hans's work uh, on his website at mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S.pe. His podcasts are Nación Combi, Contante y Sonante, and Marginal. You can find them on any podcatcher living in Peru. You can find it on iVox. And uh, he has a whole bunch of zombie novels. You can see the list of them on his website. He has a new thing coming out. He told me uh, it's called Proyecto Cthulhu, which is like Project Cthulhu. I don't know if you're familiar with nice. the whole Cthulhu thing. But uh, yeah. I guess it's actually uh, it's a book that's being edited in the United States. And they're all it's a collection of short stories uh, honoring H.P. Lovecraft. They're all written by uh, Latin American writers and so he has a short story there uh, he says that they're actually going to translate it to english and it's going to be available on physical and also online so if you have a kindle and you speak spanish you can check out his book if not you can wait till the english translation but uh anyway thank you hans for all your work and speaking of thanks for the hard work zoe perez who helps uh, curate our social media specifically our instagram account we do greatly appreciate all the work you do for us help us out and uh basically yeah provide better content for instagram than julio or i could so always appreciate your help so that is gonna do it for this episode of the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong and we will catch you next time Summer of 1999